I see the dysfunction out there and things like the rise in psychiatric problems among the young as indications that people are living in very unnatural ways. Uh, they're unnatural for the kind of creatures we are. We're social creatures. We seek deep connections. Welcome to Respect Life Radio. My name is Deacon Jeff Bennett with Catholic Charities of the Archdiocese of Denver. And remember, you can listen to all of our shows at respectliferadio.com. Today, our very special guest is Mary Eberstadt. Mary is a writer and senior fellow at the Faith and Reason Institute in Washington, D.C. She's written several books, including How the West Really Lost God, A New Theory of Secularization, It's Dangerous to Believe, Religious Freedom and Its Enemies, Adam and Eve After the Pill. I read that one. That was really good. Uh, Paradoxes of the Sexual Revolution, and then uh, The Loser Letters, A Comic Tale of Life, Death, and Atheism. you got a lot of books out there, don't you, Mary? <laughs> so it seems, Deacon Jeff. Well, it keeps people like me out of trouble, so that's, that's good. And uh, I really do enjoy your insight and, and how you kind of look at the culture and can really identify the problems. And part of the reason we're talking today was an article that you just uh, published in First Things called The Fury of the Fatherless that really comes out of your latest book, Primal Screams, doesn't it? Yes, it does. It does. I was struck by what I think a lot of us were struck by this past year, uh, the riots and the protests across the United States. Um, a recent analysis indicates that there were some 10,000 of these incidents, which I think is more than most of us even imagine. Yeah. And of those 10,000, some 500 of them turned violent. And that got me to thinking about what was really going on in this massive wave of unrest across the United States. And that's where that piece, the fury of the fatherless, came from. Yeah, and I mean, I and and the fury part really does come out to play as you were just talking about. And you mentioned in the article, you know, the riots amount to you know social dysfunction on parade. It's like a giant circus of angry people, and they're angry, right? Because fathers have, you know, I, I like to, you know, look, they've really abdicated their position. You can't say it got taken from them, but they were all too willing to give up, you know, their authority to provide and protect and what God had given them to do. Well, it's clear that the riots and the protests in the beginning were motivated by a legitimate concern about police brutality, but they quickly morphed into something else. And the reason I say that is that if you watch the footage of what was happening at these protests, these were not just about police brutality. These protesters tore down statues across the country of not only Confederate generals, but of anything that looked like a male authority figure, city fathers, town fathers, Mahatma Gandhi, Father Sarah in California. So this kind of trashing of patrimony goes way beyond the question of police brutality. And my hypothesis is that behind these protests, behind these people screaming in the street, is a deep suffering that has been brought on by a crisis of paternity. And this is not only about literal fatherlessness, although when 40% of kids are being raised without a dad at home, it's certainly partly about that. But in the article, I try to make the connection to other forms of the Father, mm -hmm. beginning with the Father in Heaven, capital F Father, 
a lot of younger Americans are not familiar with organized religion. It hasn't been passed on to them. So they've been uh, bereft of a father in sense. They are also, many of them, not very patriotic. They're not tied to their country in the same way that older Americans are. So I see this, Deacon Jeff, as a, a threefold crisis of paternity that is falling primarily on the shoulders of younger people. And I believe it's that profound disconnection that explains why they are seeking community in the streets and in these bands of identitarians, you know, based on gender, based on ethnicity, based on political views, etc. What's driving that deep need for connection is that many of these people are profoundly connected in ways that they weren't before and the previous generations were not. Yeah, you know, it's you know, it's funny. It's not accidental either because if you look at, you know, Kate Millett and her, you know, communist manifest or a feminist manifesto, the Black Lives Matter, I mean, right, they were they and that was just on their website before it got scrubbed. We want to destroy the patriarchy, right? I mean, this is a concerted effort by by feminists, by Marxists that, you know, if you want chaos, you better start at the top, get rid of pops in whatever form that looks like, and the family becomes easy pickings. Yes, it is deliberate, and it goes back to the very beginning of identity politics. The first time that phrase was used was in a document put out by some radical African-American feminists in 1977. I find that date very suggestive. This is just as the first generation born into the sexual revolution is coming of age. And what these women said was essentially, we give up on the idea of men in our lives. We, we give up um, I, the idea that anybody has our back except for people exactly like us. It's a deeply disturbing statement, uh, this manifesto, but it goes to show that the idea of living apart from family, the idea of not having fathers and brothers, two words that are never mentioned in that document, this idea predates Black Lives Matter. It goes all the way back to the beginning of this way of doing politics. Yeah, which is what, you know, Kate Millett, Gloria Steinem, I mean, they used to start off their meetings with with like that anthem among that and getting rid of the patriarchy was one of several things but i mean there was a concerted plan and that's the late 60s so you can see how it manifested itself to identity politics in in 77 when you said the first time it was used well i'm not going to defend kate millet and company but i would observe that at least when they were acclaiming this uh new way of life uh they didn't know what the consequences would be but we can see the consequences, including in the streets of the United States in 2020. And we can't pretend that we don't know what has come of this experiment in living without family, living without God. We can see very clearly that, first of all, it's caused a lot of suffering out there. When I watch video of these protests and riots, that's what I see inscribed on the faces of these young people. And... They know that they're victims. I mean, they tell us this all the time, right? They're victims of the patriarchy or they're victims of heteronormativity or whatever it is they point to. My, what I'm trying to bring out in my work is that there is something authentic there. 
these young people are victims, but they are not victims of these abstractions Mm -hmm. that they are taught in their humanities faculty or wherever. They are victims of a deep dislocation from human community, beginning with the community of the family and then including the community of church, organized religion. We have to understand that this is really, this moment in humanity is unique. People have not tried to live without these things before on the scale that they are now trying to live without them. And again, what it's causing out there is suffering. Yeah, I mean, you wrote, you know, How the West Really Lost God. It was interesting. A few weeks ago, I interviewed an exorcist, and I said, look, is evil worse out there? And he said, no, it's not, it's not worse. The devil's game is exactly the same as it's always been. It's just that less people have faith, so what he's doing is more effective. That's really interesting. One phrase that keeps coming to my mind is illiteracy. You know, we think of peasants in the 13th century, and we think of them as illiterate, as many of them were, but they had literacy of a different kind that many people today don't. They had familial literacy. They had religious literacy. They knew where they fit into the order of things. And again, I see the dysfunction out there and things like the rise in psychiatric problems among the young as indications that people are living in very unnatural ways. And they're unnatural for the kind of creatures we are. We're social creatures. We seek deep connections. And trying to live without those connections is really what's ailing the United States today, and not just the United States, but the countries of the Western world that are affected by the same post-sexual revolution trends. Well, and I mentioned before we got on, I actually stole some pieces out of your article for a homily this weekend. (laughs) And one of the things I stole was it says the absence of fathers predicts higher rates of truancy, psychiatric problems, criminality, promiscuity, drug use, rape, domestic violence, to name a few, and people's mouths dropped open. Well, these are all very well-documented effects and associations, and it's not to say that these are true for every kid who grows up without a dad at home. The point of putting things like that out there is not to point fingers at anybody. It is instead to say, look, we know these things. We know how important it is uh, to have a male authority figure in the house, but what we're up against is all of that social science on the one hand is contending with this dominant idea on the other hand that there's toxic masculinity and that we can't trust paternal authority. And so it's no wonder, Deacon Jeff, that these kids are confused. Look at the messages that the culture sends them. Yeah, yeah. And and so unfortunately, you know, and, and you mentioned, you know, if you grow up without, you know, the father, capital F, God the Father, uh, you know, and you do things contrary to his plan, it's hard to imagine things are going to go good. And, you know, you do a great job of talking about the kids in Portland, right, the homeless. And you talk about, you know, look, if there isn't the father figure there, they're going to find a substitute, aren't they? Yes, they are. I would like to zero in on that a little bit. Yeah. So in <clears throat> Portland became ground zero for these protests and riots, night after night, with these young people arrayed against the police, throwing things at the police, and otherwise acting out their suspicion of paternal authority again. 
But what we have to understand is that Portland isn't just any American city. If you go Googling, you will see that Portland's permissive policies made it a mecca for runaway kids. And this has been true for at least 30 years. I found documentaries about this um, from, from the past 30 years. So in Portland, it's been clear for a long time that kids without parents, kids without authority figures, um, number one, become dysfunctional. By no coincidence, Portland is also the heroin capital of the West. By the way, they and, just legalized all, all hard drugs, too, on top of everything else, right? And that'll help. I'm <laughs> yeah, I'm sure it will. Uh, but the second point is that these kids in Portland or anywhere else who are deprived of families will try to recreate families of their own, and that's what these so-called street families are. And the problem is that street families are a toxic substitute for the real thing. Street families in Portland have been involved in some pretty heinous crimes over the years. And the same is true, of course, of street gangs uh, in the piece, uh, The Fury of the Fatherless. I talk about this study that really caught my eye. It came out of um, Minnesota, and it was of street gangs. And it was all about how street gangs are substitute families for these kids. And almost all of the boys who join these gangs are coming out of fatherless homes. So let that sink in. In other words, you could grow up in a horrible neighborhood, but if your dad is at home, you are very unlikely to get swept up in these gangs that mm -hmm. commit crimes and otherwise blight the prospects of young people. So there, again, we have a very important association between fatherlessness and bad outcomes. Well, I think you did a great job of you know, kind of pointing that out. And, you know, you talk a lot about, you know, identity politics and you mentioned, you know, that, you know, when it started. But how does seeing, you know, what's going on with fathers and deterioration of the family play into identity politics? Well, the two things have everything to do with each other. <clears throat> if you just look around and you see how our politics is being transformed by these aggrieved groups, right? sexual minorities, um, ethnic minorities, uh, and the effect that they're having on the general culture. What you see is that if you take a step back, it looks like a lot of the young people uh, in America are experiencing a massive identity crisis, right? That's why they look for these groups. They're trying to find something that they can attach to. And the reason is that the old ways of answering that question, who am I? are not available to them. So if, if you ask me, who am I? Mm -hmm. I would say I'm a mother, I'm a wife, I'm an aunt, I'm a cousin, I'm a Catholic. I would resort to my primal connections, whether to my family or my religious faith. And a lot of these young people who have been raised without robust family connections and without any connection to a church don't know how to answer that question. And so, again, we see this frantic drive to these groups that look like communities to them uh, to which they can attach and find support. And it's sad. Yeah, I mean, it's very sad because we see the results of it, and it just seems to keep spiraling downhill. Um, you know, I've heard it, you know, talking to, to other people and, and talking about issues 
um, you know, about cultural Marxism, right? Where they kind of come, you know, they have people who are struggling identity, right? So you com- you combat male against female, black against white. I mean, it's constantly, you know, figure out who am I fighting as opposed to who am I? Yes, exactly. So it's very destructive. And what I try to do in my work uh, is to say to those people, look, I, I see something authentic here. We can all see something authentic here, but you are not the victims of the things that you think you are. You're not victims of some imaginary conspiracy about the patriarchy, heteronormativity or whatever you want to call it. You are victims of radical social trends that started in the 1960s with the cultural approval of most of the people in authority and that have gotten worse over the decades since. And this is the burden that you're carrying around. And also, I would want to say to those people that the Catholic Church was nearly alone in standing against these things, because I don't think the Church gets the credit that it should for sticking by its teachings and seeing something very wrong in the world after the sexual revolution. So that's a positive thought to put out there, that the Church deserves more credit than the Church gets in these matters. Yeah, I mean, and they—you're right. They, you know, the church, the church's teachings don't change, and if they were irrelevant, nobody would care about them, right? But because they are relevant, people get mad at the church because it goes against what the culture's saying. So people have to decide, right? Am I going to buy into what the culture's saying, or am I going to embrace two thousand years of teaching and and a God who loves me versus a culture who, in the end, doesn't really care what happens to me? Yes, and that's the hope, is that the Church offers people an elevated understanding of the human person, uh, one that says we have dignity, and we're not just a blob of cells, and we can't do whatever we would like because we are better than that and held to a higher standard. And I think if we put it in that kind of language, it does have the potential to resonate out there, because the one thing that young people today know is that something is wrong. They know that there's something deeply broken, and they just need to connect the right dots on this. And then I think we might see something of uh, countercultural revolution. You know, it was interesting. In uh, Primal Screams, in your conclusion, you talk about uh, basically a society of elephants. Can you talk about it? Because when you're reading about it, if you took elephants out and put humans, it would sound exactly the same. Yes, it's so interesting, and this is another way I think we can connect with especially younger people, because they do care about animals, Um, and I think that's legitimate, entirely legitimate. And what I talk about in the book is how we have a new understanding of elephants, especially, about what intensely social creatures they are, how much their families matter to them. They actually cry and mourn when they're separated from one another. And these are the kinds of things we've discovered that uh, have led to banning elephants in circuses, for example. We, we now understand that they can't exist happily by themselves. Well, what's so perverse about us, <laughs> human beings, is that we, we don't apply these lessons to ourselves. Somehow we think we can be rugged individualists. We can live all by our lonesome. 
And we don't understand that the lessons we've learned from the animal kingdom apply to us, too. We think we're so smart, we don't even see the things around us that can give us clues about things that are wrong in our own lives, right? Well, let's put it this way. If we ran experiments on other animals the way we do on ourselves, there would be an outcry, and that would be the right response. If we separate elephants and monkeys and other uh, mammals from one another and from their families and we see the way they suffer, we can say, ah, you know, we should minimize this kind of suffering. So why can't we see it among ourselves? I mean, part of the reason is we're blinded with this ideology according to which everything about the sexual revolution is a liberation and nothing should ever be rolled back, right? This is the problem we see is that there's fierce resistance to reconsidering any aspect of the world after the 1960s. But we've got to get to a place where we can have second thoughts about some of that stuff, because that stuff, uh, the trends in family breakup and fatherless homes, etc., that stuff is the stuff that ails us. But, you know, you, you and you pointed out so well, I guess the thing that's the most mind-boggling is that if you just sat back and looked objectively, you would see the unhappiness, the anger, the dysfunction that's going on in the world. And if nothing else, wouldn't you ask the question, how the heck did we get here and, and what do we need to do to change it? But you don't even hear those questions asked, do you? Or not very often. No, I think the dominant um, ideology out there wants to draw a happy face around this. But, you know, it's not just the social science, Deacon Jeff, uh, that indicates what's wrong. There's also popular culture. Um, at some point, maybe almost 20 years ago, I wrote a piece called Eminem is Right. And it was all about the rage in popular music. And I chose Eminem because this is what he raps about and has for decades now. It's all about family dysfunction. It's all about fatherless homes. It's all about the damage that's done to kids. It seems weird to suggest that he might be a traditionalist icon, but in a way, he, he put his finger on what was wrong out there. And it wasn't just Eminem. It was a whole slew of bands in the 1990s. It was grunge rock. So whether we look at these things through the lens of popular culture or the lens of theology or of politics, we see the same thing. We've, what we see is the damage that we have done to ourselves uh, since the sexual revolution took hold. And pointing that out is not Pollyanna-ish. It's realist. It's the only realist approach to the United States and its problems today. So do you think people just, and you know, you do a lot of social science, you, you, you get that. Is it just that people don't want to admit they're wrong and they're unhappy and they're just going to keep going down this path and hopefully just things will change? Talk about being Pollyanna-ish, right? Well, I think it's a little worse than that. I think what we're up against is the fact that everybody's implicated in one way or another. Even people who try to be free of this stuff by now, every family in America has been transformed by these trends, you know, one way or another. So there's a desire not to point fingers and there's a desire not to make anyone feel uncomfortable, which is why all of this social science gets ignored. But I think sheer compassion now dictates 
that we have to keep pushing against that resistance because of the suffering out there, because of the psychiatric problems out there, because uh, this generation of kids, the, the Zoomers and the Millennials, um, are suffering from the damages put upon them by the generations before them that actually believed in all of this sexual revolution ideology. So in their names and for their sakes, I think we just have to keep keep this uphill battle going. Well, yeah, it's amazing how everybody wears their emotions on their sleeve. They're so tough. They're so angry. But the minute you say anything, you know, they, they crumble or get even angrier because no one wants to... No one wants to have their feelings hurt, which I've never seen a place that's sensitive. I mean, I grew up in Philly. Jesus, if your feelings weren't hurt at the dinner table, you felt nobody loved you. <laughs> yeah, well, again, look back to the streets. Look at what people were doing and what that tells us. We saw these protesters disrupting people dining outdoors, right? Yep. And this yep. was at the height of COVID, when that was the only place you could be. Well, again, if the protests were supposed to be about police brutality, what was that about? I think it was about people who are so angry and disconnected that they like the idea of disturbing people who are with their families. They like the idea of disturbing people who are out with friends. It goes to show, again, just how adrift they are. How can people uh, follow what you're doing and, uh, you know, look up your books and get all information about you, Mary? Oh, thank you. I have a website now. This is my attempt to join the modern world. So all <laughs> the books are on it and the articles get posted regularly. So it's just maryeverstat.com. Appreciate all your time and effort and really all the work you're doing to kind of shine the light on places people don't want to see, but they need to. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. I'm trying to use COVID in a positive way to do more reading and writing. There. Are you working on any other books at this point? Um, I had an offer to turn The Fury of the Fatherless into a book. It sure seems to have hit a nerve out there. So we'll see. <laughs> You'll see how long COVID goes, and that'll tell you how much time you have to write the book. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, we'll see if I get another book out of it. I really appreciate your encouragement. No, I, I actually, I did like it. And everybody came up to me afterwards and was like, wow, this is, this is spot on. And it's basically what you were saying. So, uh, it, it did hit a nerve and I think you, you got to keep hitting that nerve because until it, you know, they try to figure out how to handle the pain, it's just going to get worse. Thanks again, Mary. Appreciate you coming on and all the work you do and all the books you've put out. Remember, you can listen to all of our shows at respectliferadio.com.